0: Turn. Remain standing if you will. Let's turn to Romans chapter 11 for the reading of God's Word. Our text for this morning will be verses 16 through 25a, part of verse 25, so that's what we'll read. Paul says, For if the first fruit is holy... The lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you will also, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off or cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So let us pray together. Oh Lord, we pray now that you would give us insight and understanding to your word, bless the reading and preaching of it for your sake and glory, and we pray that you would transform us, mold us more into the image of your dear son, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So the Bible makes it clear that pride is unacceptable to God. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, the Bible says that pride, that is a proud look, is an abomination to God. And perhaps you're aware that in James 4, 6, it says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's evident from our passage this morning that these Gentile Christians at Rome to whom Paul wrote this letter were at least liable to spiritual pride. How is it that they would be liable, that they had the potential for such spiritual pride? Well, as we read in the text here, we see uh, that the unbelieving Israelites were broken off and these believing Gentiles were grafted in. And so it would go something like this. When the believing Gentiles would understand the privilege they had as being members of the kingdom of God, and then that because of the displacement of unbelieving Israel, it is possible that these Christians here at Rome would be arrogant towards unbelieving Israel. In fact, think about what Paul's already said in these chapters, Romans 9 through 11. In chapter 9, verse 32, he says that Israel stumbled at Christ but that these Gentiles received him. In chapter 10 and verse 21, Paul quotes the Old Testament, which says that Israel, unbelieving Israel, became a disobedient and contrary people, and yet these Gentile Christians obeyed the gospel of Christ. In chapter 11, in verse 11, Paul says that Israel stumbled, that they fell, in verse 12, and also that they trespassed. And so, there would be this tendency towards anti-Semitism, as we call it today, there in Rome, among these Gentile Christians. But see, that's not peculiar to these people to whom Paul wrote. It has existed through the ages, hasn't it? We could look at the Middle Ages, the later Middle Ages, even into the Reformation, as I've mentioned before, and see that there was this Haughty and arrogant attitude towards uh, the unbelieving Jewish people, the ethnic Israel that rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and continue to do so up until this day. What about us? You ever read the Gospels? And thought, look at those Jews, I can't believe that they said that to Jesus. I mean, can't they see who he is? And we can become rather prideful spiritually. As we see what happened there in the Gospels. And so there is this tendency for all Gentile Christians through the ages. And so then Paul writes this section here warning Gentile Christians not to be haughty towards unbelieving Israel. And he deals with this in the middle of his discourse concerning Israel's rejection as a nation. And yet Israel's future as a nation. So we have this portion of God's Word in the middle of this section. Now, remember the context where we've been lately. Paul is dealing with the problem of Israel's failure and unbelief. And as we've seen, this rejection of Israel is not total, nor is it final. In chapter 11... In verse 5, he says, even so at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. In Paul's day, there were Christian Jews. I mean, Paul himself was one. And they were part of that that remnant within Israel, the nation of Israel. And so it wasn't complete. It wasn't as though every Israelite rejected Jesus and continues to do so. They're believing Jews today. Nor is it final. It's not going to be that way forever, as we've seen, and will see again, I think. Paul talks about a time when the nation of Israel as a whole, as a people, will put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, he talks about it in verse 11, also in verse 15. I won't go back and rehash that, but just know that that is there. Their stumbling is not complete, it's not total, and it's not final. And so in our passage, Paul then is showing that the present failure of Israel is no reason for Gentile Christian pride. And he does this by showing and arguing that the future restoration of national Israel is much more natural than the present-day inclusion of Gentiles in the kingdom of God. And therefore, Paul will go on to say that Gentile Christians are not to think themselves superior to the unbelieving Jews. No, he will say that we should not be haughty, but what? Fear. And so this morning what we're going to do is just consider Paul's argument, and then make about five conclusions in light of what he says here. So what is Paul saying, and what is he arguing? When I say argue, I mean he's building his case, not that he's having a a spat. So he's making an argument here to get to a point. And what is he arguing? Well, in verse 16, basically what he is saying there is, That it is because of God's promises to the patriarchs that Old Testament Israel was formed. When I refer to the patriarchs, to the Old Testament fathers, you know, it really started with Abraham. And God would repeat that phrase, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob throughout the Old Testament. Now there are Christians, there were saved people before Abraham, but God began to gather people for himself as he went to Abraham, called him out of paganism, and made that covenant with him in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And so he said, I will be a God unto you. I will bless you. I'll give you land. I'll give you a people. In you, through you, the nations shall be blessed. And he talked about Christ to come from Abraham. And so by the time we get to Exodus chapter 3, there's Moses in Egypt. With all of God's people in slavery. Moses is at the burning bush. God comes and meets um, Moses there. And we're told in that passage that God heard Israel's cry from heaven. So he comes down and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. And it was because of his promise to Abraham that he would set his people Israel free from bondage in Egypt and bring them eventually to Sinai, and bless them as a nation, and make them a holy people, a kingdom of priests, and so forth. When you consider that, I think that's what Paul is saying here in verse 16. If you look at it, he says there, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, Kevin, how did you get all of that from that sentence there? Well, let's talk about that. He gives these two images here. One is of an Old Testament offering from Numbers, I think it is, chapter 15, where God's people were to make these cakes made out of dough, um, and they were to offer them to God. And then he talks about an olive tree. And so by using these two illustrations, that's how we arrive at what I've already said. So let's look at this. He, He talks again about this first fruit, this this batch of dough. And uh, again, that refers to Numbers 15. There was a lump of dough used to make these cakes of bread. And I think the NIV actually is helpful here when it says this in verse 16. It says, if part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And so Paul is arguing. That since God's people in the Old Testament were to use this dough and they would take a little bit of it and the first fruit of it and, and then make these cakes, it necessarily follows that the whole lump of dough was set apart. It was holy to God. OK. Well, then Paul uses another illustration, the root and the branches, and he'll develop this further as we have read in our passage. And what he is saying is very similar, if not the same thing. He says that um, if the root is holy, then the branches which come from that root are holy. Okay, so what does he mean then? Well, there have been two, two major interpretations. One would be that Paul is talking, when he says first fruits" here, that he's talking about the first Jewish converts to Christianity just after the time of Christ, at the time of the apostles. Um, and so they were, they were the first fruits. And so based on them coming to faith, there would be others later who would come to faith out of the Jewish nation. We, we believe that's true, but I don't believe that's what Paul is saying with, with this verse here in verse 16. It doesn't follow with what he's going to say about the roots and the branches and that analogy. And also if you look at verse 28, well, we have a clue about whom he's been speaking. He says there, verse 28, concerning the gospel, they, unbelieving Israel, are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, that is their national election, I think, they are beloved for the sake of whom? The fathers, the patriarchs. And so Paul makes it clear, I think, that this analogy, at least the one with the uh, roots, the branches, the olive tree, that in part he's talking about the fathers, the patriarchs, and some would say beginning with Abraham. And so then when we think about this, you have to understand, this took me a while to get it. In fact, I think I just recently really understood it, uh, thankfully before I came here this morning. Um, But there's the root, and uh, it's the root of an olive tree, and then it grows, maybe there's um, branches off, and then there, there are the branches. So there's the branches and the root, There's also the lump of dough and then the part that's taken from the dough. And so if we are to understand what he is saying, we need to understand the meaning is that the first fruit of the dough and the root of the olive tree both refer to the patriarchs, the fathers, and perhaps Abraham in particular. And so as Hodge put it, If one portion of the Jewish nation is holy, so is the other. So then, Abraham and the rest of the patriarchs were holy to the Lord, and the nation of Israel, who were chosen by God, were a holy nation to the Lord. Now we have to understand when Paul talks about the Israelites here, the Jews and the Gentiles, he's talking about them as a group of people. If we don't understand that, we can become even more confused by reading this very difficult passage of God's Word. So the first root refers to the patriarchs. The root refers to the patriarchs. The lump refers to the rest of Israel. And the branches refer to the rest of Israel. And so now Paul is going to develop this whole idea of the olive tree. Let's see what he says there in verse 17. To summarize it, I think he's giving a warning to the Gentiles and he's telling them, he is saying that the Gentiles were not originally part of the Israelite church, but were grafted into it. Verse 17, and if some of the branches... Who are the branches? The Israelites. If some of the branches... Were broken off, and you, Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root. Who's the root? Patriarchs. And the fatness, the richness of the olive tree. He says in verse 18, Do not boast against the branches. And so then, he talks about the breaking off of the branches. They are the ones who did not believe in Israel. He's talking about the unbelieving Israelites being broken off, the Gentiles being the wild olive tree, then being grafted into the olive tree, the root. But they, through their faith in Christ, these believing Gentiles, He's saying they become partakers of the root, the patriarchs. And the fatness or the nourishing sap or richness which the patriarchs enjoy is what they enjoy now. Because they've been tapped into that root. And so, as one put it, all of the promises... And privileges, all the graces and ordinances, all the spiritual blessings and benefits which belong to Abraham and his seed belong to the true church of God. And that includes believing Gentile Christians. But <clears throat> Paul cautions them. That's there in verse 18. <coughs> He says in verse 18, do not boast against the branches, that is the branches that were broken off, the unbelieving Israelites. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, the patriarchs, but the root, the patriarchs, and all the promises God made to them, that's what supports you. That's what he says there. So in other words, he's saying this, do not be arrogant, towards the unbelieving, apostate Jewish people. In Romans 3.27, Paul has already said, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but the law of faith. Elsewhere, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And so the Bible clearly warns us against spiritual pride. This was a problem, obviously, in the days of Jesus in Luke 18. He told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And before Luke gives that account, he gives a commentary on it. And here's how Luke sets up that parable. It says he, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So the two went down to pray, and the Pharisee, he thanks God that he's not like other sinners, that he does all these things, he's self-righteous, and there in the corner, shamefully, there's the publican, the tax collector, praying to God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And so, there you have the Pharisee, unbelieving, self-righteous, condemning others, hating, despising others who are not like him. That's self-righteousness, that's self-reliance, spiritual pride. And so what is true of them can happen as well of believing Gentiles. You see, that's, that's, that's the potential we have after we've been in the church of Christ for a long time, is to be spiritually prideful. We forget, right, where it is from which we come. And so, that's the issue here. Paul says the root supports you, the patriarchs, and what God promised them, which was the gospel, Galatians 3, Romans 4. That is what supports you. You do not support them. And so Paul says in Romans four sixteen, Abraham is the father of us all. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, Paul says, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to promise. And so then in verse 19 and 20, those verses there, Paul anticipates a response in verse 19. It says, you will say then, you the believing Christian Gentiles, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Verse 20, well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Now note here, the unbelieving Israelites as branches were broken off because they did not bear fruit. They did not bear the fruit of faith in Jesus and obedience to Him. So they were broken off, cast to the side, put in fire. But the unnatural Gentiles who did believe, they were grafted in to this wonderful olive tree, the Old Testament church, the people of God. And so we, in in our circles, we talk about covenant theology and all this. Sometimes we're accused of replacement theology. Perhaps there is such thing as replacement theology out there. That is not what we believe. We don't believe that the Gentile church has replaced the Old Testament church. We believe in engrafting theology. That the believing Gentiles have been engrafted into the body of God, the kingdom of God, the body of Christ. And note here as well in this verse, verse 20, I think it is, that the issue is always faith. He says, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty. Do not be prideful. Do not be arrogant. But what? Fear. He says fear. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And so in verse 21... He summarizes, and I think it could go something like this. Well, these are his words. He says that God did not spare the natural branches. And He may not spare you either. For if God did not spare the natural branches, verse 21, He may not spare you either. And he's talking to a group of people, the Gentiles. Um... R.C. Sproul put it like this. The appropriate response to the rejection of the Jews is not pride, but fear. If God did not spare the Jews who are like the natural branches, do you think He will spare the Christian church if it becomes an instrument of unbelief? That's the idea. And so verse 22, Paul says, consider the goodness and severity of God. God has all sorts of attributes, all sorts of parts of his being that we would say are characteristics, but they're his attributes, they define who he is. He is good and he is severe. Um, He says, on those who fell, severity, the unbelieving Jews. But towards you, that is you Gentiles who believe, goodness, if you continue in his Goodness. And so for those who do not put their faith in the Lord Jesus, those who believe not the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the severity of God that they should expect from God. In other passages of Scripture, Paul says, let him who loves not the Lord Jesus Christ be accursed. But those who believe in Jesus, God is good towards them. He is merciful towards them. He forgives us abundantly and pardons all of our sins. And so Paul says, think about that. Sober up. And consider whether or not you will be treated by God with severity or goodness. If you don't believe in Christ, if you reject Him, if you apostatize, or if you're going to believe in Christ and you continue to believe in Christ, If you fall away from the faith, severity. If you believe and continue to believe in Christ, goodness and mercy. Now, when you read this, perhaps you're wondering, well, is Paul saying that a Christian can lose his or her salvation? And the answer is no way. No way. The scriptures repeatedly talk about the fact that we are kept by God. That Jesus holds our hand as the good shepherd. He holds the Father's hand. No one can snatch us out of His hand. Is the Bible here teaching that we are saved based on our perseverance? That that we receive God's goodness and grace on the system of merit? Well, no. It's by grace that you are saved, right? Through faith. That, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God lest any man should boast. Even the Faith we need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is the gift that we receive from God. So there's no reason, no way that we can or should boast before God. What Paul is saying here is that they need to consider, first of all, whether or not they are in the faith. Whether or not they are trusting in Jesus Christ. And if they are continuing in that faith. It is a warning to stir us to consider whether whether we are haughty, self-righteous, self-reliant. And it is a warning to those who are teetering between faithfulness and unbelief. Maybe there are some who who are simply saying, you know what, I don't know if all of this is worth it to follow Christ. I mean, I'm going to be canceled. I'm going to be ostracized. Or it's hard. I've got to take up these spiritual disciplines. I've got to pray. I've got to read my Bible. I mean, come on. I just don't want that anymore. I just want to do what I want to do. The Bible here stirs us. It forces us to think about where we are spiritually. That's what Paul is doing. And so he says, consider the goodness and severity of God. He goes a step further in verse 23. He tells them that the Jews can be grafted in again. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. God has the ability and the power to do it. When will He do it? Why would He do that? If they do not, as a people, as a nation, the Israelites, if they do not continue in unbelief, he will graft them in, for He is able. God can and does all His holy will. As we read this morning, He is the Lord God omnipotent who reigns. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. No one can stay His hand. Uh, uh, Daniel 4 says He does what He wants in the armies of heaven and among men on the earth. And He will do it. He's more than able to do so. The old uh, PCA pastor, preacher, and commentator, James Boyce, wrote this. He said, if God did the unnatural thing in saving Gentiles, how much more should we expect Him to do the natural thing eventually and thus bring about the future widespread belief of Israel in their own Messiah? And so you see what Paul is getting at here. It's it's a rebuke on the one hand, at least a warning to these Christian Gentiles so that they don't become boastful and prideful because of the unbelieving Israelites. And also at the same time, Paul is showing and arguing that God will bring the unbelieving nation of Israel back into the fold one day as a people. He is able to do it. He will do it. And so as you see there in verse 25, he says, and so all Israel will be saved. I hope to talk about that more in the week ahead. And so, in verse 25a, Paul summarizes for a moment and tells them why he's gone through this. Kevin, why did we go through this this morning? Verse 25, Paul says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, the mystery here is something that has to be revealed by God. Of this, And he's talking about the inclusion of the Israelites in the future, the, their rejection and so forth. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Your own estimation, as we say, wise in your own eyes. This is why Paul has revealed this. And remember, Paul is, is ultimately not the author here who is. God. Sunday school answer, God, the Bible, Holy Spirit. So let me make five applications then. Let me draw five or so conclusions as we talk about this this morning. As we see what Paul has said here, first of all, I think we ought to see that there is only one people of God. There is only one people of God consisting of Old Testament and New Testament believers and their children. Now when I say that, I'm talking about the church on earth body of Christ on earth, the visible church, as we call it, it consists of all those who make a we say credible profession of faith and their children. First Corinthians seven fourteen. The children of believers are holy. Doesn't mean they're automatically Christian. It means they're part of that covenant community. Just to put it simply and quickly. So there's only one. Body of Christ, one people of God, one kingdom of God. Think about what we've seen in Romans, Paul's letter. We've seen that both Jew and Gentile have the same Savior. They have the same faith in that Savior. They're under the same covenant relationship with God, the covenant of grace. And we see here in our text that they are members of the same body. They're all connected to the same root, patriarch. One people of God. You can turn there if you like. Ephesians chapter 2, a few letters to the right there. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He basically says the same thing in a different way. In Ephesians 2, uh, beginning of verse 11, he says, Therefore remember. See, we forget, don't we? We forget. Remember that you once, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jews made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We ought to say glory, glory, be to God through Jesus Christ, His coming, His death, His burial, His resurrection. And because I've received that promise offered to me through Him in the gospel, now I am a member of the commonwealth of Israel. I am part of the Israel of God, the people of God. In verse 14, he says, For He Himself, Christ, is our peace, both Jew and Gentile, who has made both one." And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, the ordinance, and so forth. He's made one new man from the two. All that's to say that there are not two peoples of God. The Old Testament people and the New Testament. Nope. Uh, Maybe we could say the physical people of God and the spiritual people of God. Nope. There's one people of God. And that one people of God is called the kingdom of God. It's called the Israel of God. It's called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the body of Christ. And we could go on. Second, we ought to see here that one of the greatest marks of the Christian should be humility. Humility. Paul says not to to boast, not to brag against the branches, verse 18, that have been broken off. You don't look at those who have been broken off, who were part of the the church, the visible church, and they've been cut off because they did not believe in Jesus Christ. You don't look at them and say, you stupid, foolish sinner. Now, maybe they're foolish. But be careful. How could you do that? Nor are we to boast against God. Verse 36, we'll see that as well. It is to God to whom be glory forever and ever. God receives all of the glory, not us. Unto you, O Lord, be the glory, not unto us. The psalmist put it that way. And so Christian humility. Again, I, I'll say it again. I heard somebody say it recently. I'm so proud, a Christian. Pride is an abomination, a proud look. God resists the, the pride, the prideful, the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Our words need to have meaning. We need to be careful with our speech. Not legalistic. When when a Christian says that, I know what they mean. I'm I'm pleased with my, my son and my daughter. I'm so happy. I'm so thankful to the Lord. But see, if I say, I'm thankful for you, son. I'm thankful for you. You can say, son, daughter, I'm pleased. And at the same time, you give glory to God. And so, humility should be one of the greatest marks of the Christian. He says we are to fear and when he says we are to fear, it doesn't mean that we become scared of God, that we have this slavish fear that that we're going to be wiped out and, and uh, blasted into eternity, forever in hell. No, if we're God's people, we're always God's people. We will persevere. And when he talks about this fear here, he's talking about a holy respect, reverence for God. That's something we've lost in our Christian culture today. I think, I, I, I seem to... See it few and far between, and even in my own life, the disrespect for God can bubble up and out of out of my heart. And so we are to have a godly fear. In Philippians two twelve, Paul says, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." My dad was a handyman, so maybe I, I get some of that. I almost killed myself with electricity one time and i uh, doing a home project, but I have a healthy fear and respect of electricity. I know, who, I know what it can do, right? And, and I should know that if, if I pretend to claim the name of Christ and live like hell, that God will deal with me one day and I should have a fear of that. But also I should know that if I am His child because of what Jesus has done for me, my fear. Is that I have displeased my Heavenly Father. Think about what He's done. And so there's the fear of the Christian. Amazing grace. We're going to see that later. Pay attention to the fear there. My greatest fear is relieved. But yet through the Gospel, now you've taught my heart how to fear. There, there are different fears. And so we ought to have biblical humility. Third, is related to that, Christians ought not to be presumptuous. What does it mean to presume, to be presumptuous? Well, it means to assume something um, without any basis for, for, for having that assumption. It's arrogance. Uh, in 1828, Webster put it like this, uh, it is an unreasonable confidence and divine favor. You see, we shouldn't assume that we're a Christian just because we've received the mark of baptism of church membership. Uh, we shouldn't assume we're a Christian just because we go to church, just because my mom, my dad, my great-granny... Was a uh, devoted believer? No. We shouldn't assume these things. The issue is faith faith in Christ. Verse 20, you stand by faith, and faith alone in Christ. So, what is saving faith? Hebrews 11 says, faith is, well, I can't remember. Yeah, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And so we talk about saving faith. Our catechism says it like this. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. When it comes to saving faith, there are three elements of it. There's knowledge, assent, and trust. We have the knowledge of the facts of the gospel. We believe them. We assent to the facts of the gospel. But there's more to it than that. You know, we talk about head knowledge versus heart knowledge, however you want to put it. There's trust, the element of trust. And so, children, you you know this illustration. We've talked about it. If I if I want to sit on this chair, I, I've been told it's a chair. So that's what I'm going to call it. It's a chair. I believe that it's going to support me. But you know what? I'll demonstrate my trust that it will support me when I sit on it. So, all of those are elements of saving faith. We rest on Jesus Christ alone. And so, we don't need to be presumptuous. You know, so, so many times we can look back to our Christian past, our faith that we had, our past obedience, our past spiritual victories. But where are we today? Where are we today? Are we gauging our present spirituality based on our past spiritual accomplishments by the grace of God back then? Where are we? And so we ought not to be presumptuous. And that leads us to this whole thing, this idea of the perseverance of the saints. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You will persevere in your Christian faith. It will wax and wane. You'll have mountaintop experiences. You'll walk through the valley. God is with you there in both. But if you're a true child of God, that faith will never go away. And then fourth, the Christian then is one who will bear fruit. Who will bear holiness. He talks about holiness there in verse 16. We have this whole idea of the vine or the um, olive tree analogy. The unbelieving Israelites were cut off because they didn't bear fruit. Part of that fruit is faith. Another part of that fruit is obedience. Just go read James 2 because faith without works is what kind of faith? Dead faith. We aren't saved because of our works, but our works prove that our faith that saves us is real. And remember, even saving faith itself is the instrument of our justification, the instrument of our forgiveness. It's not the grounds, it's not the reason. When we reach out to, to Christ to save us, it's with an empty hand. And we say, please save us. And He does. But that faith will persevere and it will bear fruit. Just think of the thief on the cross. He, he didn't live long enough as a, as a Christian to bear much fruit. But there he is on the cross defending the honor of Christ. And at the same time, he's, he wants to be with Christ. He wants the presence of Christ. And he says, remember me. Remember me. And Christ says, this day you too shall be with me in paradise. And so we had fruit, evidence of his faith. And so I ask you, what evidence do you have today, this hour, that your faith is real? Can you have assurance of your salvation? And so then last, all of this brings us back to Christ, doesn't it? Because if we've discovered, well, my faith has been a dead faith, what's the proper response? Help my unbelief, oh Lord. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Or you've seen some inconsistencies, and your toes hurt this morning, and, and you're thinking, oh Lord, what do I do? Well, you go back to Christ. Because Christ says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, Christ is the life. He gives us spiritual nourishment and the sap that produces all the fruit that is expressive of our union that manifests our connection to Him. And Jesus puts it like this in John 3 or John 6, 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. If those first century Israelites who were the branches, who were cut off, would only have put their faith in Jesus and come to Him, Jesus would have made sure that they would have never been cast out. So flee to Christ. And He says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will by no means cast you out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. We, we thank you that there are promises in Scripture, that there are warnings, so that we do not become uh, sleepy and idle, but you keep us on our toes for good reason. For we know our hearts, and yet we know how powerful you are to overcome them, and we pray that you do this morning for your own glory, and we ask in Christ's name, Amen.